Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about the cool, nerdy stuff you love. We're on the web at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Rebecca Thompson, author of Fire, Ice, and Physics, The Science of Game of Thrones. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So for uh, I guess first, uh, is it just the TV series we're going to be talking about or the books as well? The books as well. So it's kind of a mix between the two. Um, a lot of the physics concepts, a lot of the science concepts were consistent between the two, but um, there's spoilers from both. Right. So. Yeah, and that's a warning to anyone listening that uh, there will be many spoilers, so just keep that in mind. Yes. All right. So first, how did you uh, end up studying about this specifically and writing a book on it? Um, so I was uh, teaching at a summer institute for science teachers. I was teaching teachers how to teach physics, and someone said, hey, why don't you give a dinner dinnertime lecture? And I said, on what? And they said, I don't know, whatever you're interested in. <laughs> so I had binge-watched season one and two, and I was like, oh, I'll just talk about that. Um, so put together uh, some clips from season one and two, um, looked and kind of just started asking myself physics questions, you know, physics specifically, because I'm a physicist by training. And, um, you know, hey, could dragons really produce fire that hot, like hot enough to melt Harrenhal? What would happen if you had an ice wall? And all these kind of just fun questions I wanted to explore. So um, I put together this dinnertime lecture and everyone loved it and um, had a lot of fun and um, got asked to do it in a couple more places. And as the season grew, I expanded on what I was talking about and then finally um, ran into MIT Press and they were like, hey, you want to write a book on it? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, it was wonderful because I got to really expand on, um, expand from just physics. So from an hour long talk, I get hundreds of pages of, you know, room to explore all sorts of different things like the biology of beheading and, you know, the genetics of incest and mm -hmm. the metallurgy of swords and a little bit of everything. Nice. So does that mean when you were watching, would you watch it first just for fun and then go back and start with your science applications? So one thing um, that I never wanted to do was take away any fun. Hmm. So absolutely, first and foremost, this is a fantasy story. We People are lost in this world. You know, they want to be a part of it. You want to just enjoy the show. Hmm. And what I don't want to do is start picking it apart and telling it, saying everything that's wrong. Hmm. I want to really use the science to enhance the storytelling and to make you think about what you're seeing and um, how that might be a launching, like a jumping off point for more science. Um, so the first thing I would do, I didn't get into writing this book because I wanted to pick apart science. I got into writing this book because I freaking love Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that's it. And so I initially, uh, just every episode, I just watched it. I just sat there and watched it and enjoyed it. And then it was like, oh, okay, now let's think about what science questions I can ask. And let's think about how this fits into ideas I already had. Mm -hmm. um, and there were only a few times that I really got frustrated with the science where I was like, oh, I really want to pick that apart. Mm -hmm. And um, but very, very few over the over all the seasons. This was uh, just a, just a few small times. But yeah, first and foremost, it's I mean, it's entertainment and I was going to be entertained. <laughs> yeah. OK. So how do you um, how do you lay out the book? Do you go along, you know, follow the episodes or do you, you know, theme it out with different fields of science? How does that work? Um, so I did it in different themes. So I thought that there were, I felt that there were um, different topics that could kind of be covered by the show. And so I start out um, looking at, is it possible to have a planet with unpredictable seasons? Is that scientifically possible? And to really answer that question, I can't just say yes or no. It's a full chapter taking us through why Earth has seasons and how that might change. So by the end, you've learned a lot about your own planet and then also really looked at whether or not this could happen in a fantasy world. Um, and the majority, the, the topics were kind of laid on like laid out like that. Um, one of the things I spent a lot of time doing is in addition to the things that I wanted to talk about, 
I spent a lot of time on fan sites Mm -hmm. (laughs) and seeing what they were arguing about. Like, what was everyone, what did they want to know? And it was, a lot of it was, um, uh, could you really have an ice wall? Could dragons really fly? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Could dragons really breathe fire? Um, And uh, what would happen if you had kids with your sister? Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I I kind of made sure to to go into all of that. Mm -hmm. And then there were some other things that weren't necessarily being asked, but I thought were interesting scientific topics, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly steel and weaponry. We just kind of take that for granted in sci-fi. And I really kind of had space to delve into that, and that was fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one topic that uh, admittedly I I have to say I do pick apart is the power of their – they're projectile weapons. And I think a lot of fantasy series do that. You know, the amount of power they throw seems yes. a little incredible. Yes. And I, that is one of those things where I'm like, you know what? I'll let it go. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, we all know that that's maybe pushing it a little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let that go. We can, we can, everybody can kind of understand projectile motion. So I, what I didn't want this to be was like an intro physics textbook, mm. right? Like, you can go anywhere and read about projectile motion, but I wanted one place where you could go and read about how do you navigate at sea and, you know, is Valyrian steel a real thing? And like all of these topics that you're not going to find in your intro textbook. So I wanted to make sure that it was a little bit broader than that, but yeah, you're right. Projectiles, they're pretty terrible anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) So, how much of it did you just depend on what you know in science already? And how much did you reach out to other scientists? Um, the majority of it, I reached out to other scientists. Hmm. So, um, as a physicist, there's a lot of kind of, um, physics I understand. So a lot of, actually a lot of the kind of back of the envelope math calculations were my own. Hmm. Um, but, for things like particularly biology or chemistry um, or very specialized topics, I didn't know much about it. And so I spent a lot of time going to um, peer-reviewed research and figuring out research papers and having to figure out how doctors publish differently than physicists and chemists, and, you know, figuring out how everyone talks um, and pulling out the data I needed from those papers and then also figuring out who I really who were the scientists I wanted to talk to about how things worked? And so particularly the ice wall, um, there's this uh, one professor, Martin Truffer, who had actually done, he's a glacier scientist, mm-hmm. and he'd done the calculations on what would happen to an ice wall mm-hmm. if it were just ice. Mm-hmm. And so I got to talk to him, and, um, you know, his data is in the book, and, um, and I said, you know, what made you want to do this calculation? He's like, I don't know. I've never watched the show. I don't really want to. My grad students made me. <laughs> <laughs> It was awesome. <laughs> and yet he contributes. <laughs> yes. And so he had a lot of fun. Um, I did, there's a chapter on how to stay warm in the cold, considering mm-hmm. a huge percentage of the, um, of the action takes place north of the wall. And I wanted to know, like, could the Ikea rugs that they wear as Night's Watch cloaks, like, <laughs> could they keep them warm? And as I'm doing these calculations, um, I was looking at the weight of things like that and, um, the thickness and actually went to I- the Ikea website to figure out the weight of the whatever rug that they wore as, <laughs> as um, Night's Watch cloaks. But <laughs> I figured that I could do all these calculations, but what I really wanted was to talk to someone that had um, that knew what it was like to be athletic in the cold. Hmm. Um, and so I'm an endurance athlete, and through various uh, triathlon connections, um, was able to do an interview with someone that had done um, a marathon on every continent. Mm-hmm. And so she had done a marathon in um, in Antarctica, had done a marathon on the North Pole. Wow. And so I talked to her in extensively, not just about like the science of how she stayed warm. Like I can go read about Gore-Tex. I wanted to know what she did. What was it like for her body? Mm-hmm. Um and that was fascinating. And one of the, the really interesting things um, in her talking about it was that, at least at the North Pole, the dry, very cold air led to frostbite. Mm. But that wasn't near as physically challenging as the Boston Marathon the year it rained and was like 40 degrees. Mm. Because your body's working so hard. When you're wet, your body's working so hard to kind of dry off. And your heat, though the water is taking the heat away from your body so fast, mm. that she was actually more uncomfortable at that Boston Marathon than she was doing a marathon at the North Pole. Mm. And 
to me, that just blew me away because I had all the numbers in front of me and I knew that that should technically be the case Mm -hmm. that wet and cold is way worse than cold. And, and like, logically I knew that was true, but I never would have believed it unless I heard it coming from someone who had experienced both. And so getting a chance to talk to people like that was really wonderful. Yeah, that is cool. Um, how much would you say the book is, if someone were reading it, how much would they get of like the game of Thrones plot and such versus the science? How does it balance? Oh, I think I, so I would have to say much more science than game of Thrones plot. So there's definitely spoilers, but I know a number of people that have kind of read chapters of it and enjoyed it, even if they didn't know what the point was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of set most of the chapters up answering a big question. So whether it's, could we have messed up seasons or, um, are there real life zombies and white walkers uh-huh. or, um, is Valyrian steel a real thing? And, um, then I use science to back it up and really answer the question. The, at least for the one, um, about staying warm, the kind of the overarching question was, does Jon Snow need to wear a hat? Mm-hmm. And like, cause he doesn't. And, trying to answer the questions. And so there's a lot of interesting science that read that you're going to get reading the book that um, doesn't necessarily depend on game of Thrones, but is just really kind of um, driven by it. You know, that's, that was really the driving force between bo- the motivation for it. But um, you can certainly enjoy it without, you know, knowing anything about the plot other than the characters. And, um, and, and that was fun. So I hope people that, you know, some people that read it maybe didn't watch the show, but enjoyed it. So you said also that you um, talk about ideas that come up in the books. Did you see any differences in the science, the application of science between the book and the show? Anything? Not really. Um, it was interesting because the um, show was really helpful in doing kind of back of the envelope calculations. So things like could zombie Viserion with blue flame actually melt the wall? Mm-hmm. And to do that calculation, I needed to know how much time he spent at each point on the wall, mm-hmm. like how much energy was he putting into the wall for what amount of time could that really have melted something that was 300 feet thick? Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed the, sh- I needed the visual, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. the book is not going to tell me the Syrians stopped for exactly 30 seconds at each, <laughs> you know, so I needed that visual, mm-hmm. um, analyzing dragon fire colors. Like the book doesn't tell me like they'll occasionally mention like white hot fire, but you know, it, it's not the same. I needed the visual to be able to do those estimates. Um, but what was I found fascinating is the book was much better at world building, and it had this incredibly rich um, culture. And one of the things, um, particularly with the seasons, that was really interesting to learn is um, exactly how important our moon is in keeping our orbit stable. Mm-hmm. So our moon really stops our, you know, keeps our axis tilted at about 23 degrees. And without a moon, we wobble all over. And so that's interesting. Um, in the show, it's like whatever. In the book, there's a, um, a Lycian legend about the fact that the planet, um, you know, the known world used to have two moons mm-hmm. instead of one. Mm-hmm. And one flew too close to the sun and exploded and dragons came to Earth and the seasons went nuts. That is really physically accurate. So if there were two moons in a stable system and one blew up, the access, the, the, um, wobble of the axis could be thrown into complete chaos. I mean, someone did this simulation. Like you blow up the moon, we're thrown into chaos. Hmm. And so whether or not it meant to be, it was meant to be that way, um, that, that little extra added richness of, you know, world building, um, really helped inform the science. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that that brings up the I was thinking the question of how much did Martin do his own scientific research because he wrote extensively before Game of Thrones. He's been a fantasy sci-fi writer for decades before yep. he hit it big with this. And I think um I think he has a a lot a big background in history and religion. Mm-hmm. And so those were very much a lot of the plots was very much based on actual things that were happening and, um, you know, our actual history. A lot of his kind of exploration of religious religion and philosophy were very much, um, you know, informed by real real ideas. Um, but as far as I know, his science was just kind of like, that feels good. <laughs> so, um, OK, okay. 
<laughs> and um, I mean, the, the the second moon exploding was really the one that that was so close. And um, at least for me, even as a scientist, I was kind of I you know I've done these intro physics problems, like I've done these physics problems. And until I really started looking at people that had done computer simulations of what our world would look like with and without a moon, hmm. I didn't even think to ask the question. Yeah. And so that was like a, a really tiny little corner of physics research that I think most physicists would say, yeah, okay, I think the moon's kind of important, but not think about it very much. So even like physicists might not have thought to add that little that little extra twist and yeah. and i think that that's neat that he did yeah how um as far as the uh the parts about beheading and you know um the genetic uh mixing between you know siblings um how was there a lot did you discover a lot there that was that was uh particularly <laughs> intriguing well, so um, I, I went to some of the darkest corners of the Internet. <laughs> um, like, I mean, people publish papers that I'm just like, wow, you did what? And, and the, the medical science that was going on in like the 1800s, like 19th century medicine was not a part I would ever want to be, you know, part of. And um, looking at uh, one, I mean, like one problem I wanted to solve is, OK, let's say you have molten gold poured over your head. And how are you going to die? <laughs> Is it going to be shock? How long is it going to take? Are you going to get su are you going to be suffocated? Like what's going to actually kill you? You know it's going to end in death. Hmm. But what's going to actually kill you? So I'm looking up like what happened? Like I I think I just straight up googled what happens if you pour molten lead down someone's throat, right? Like I am flagged on every internet browser. <laughs> <laughs> so I found a, a an account. It's certainly not peer reviewed. Of um, someone that asked this question and took a cow esophagus and plugged it up at one end and poured molten lead down it to see what would happen. Oh, that doesn't like, oh. sound uh, very safe. Yeah, no, it, it blew up. Um, <laughs> so it's just the darkest corners of the internet. And one thing that like even modern medicine and modern like peer reviewed um, studies on things. One thing that fascinated me was how many of these kind of seemingly gory papers had a really kind of compassionate purpose, hmm. um, which sounds strange, but I was, I wanted to research whether or not a human could crush a man's skull, right? Like whether or not a really strong guy could crush a skull. Yeah. So to solve this, I need a couple of things. Like I need to figure out how strong the strongest man is. Like how much can you squeeze? And then I also need to figure out how strong is a human skull. And I can't just look up how much, how like the force it takes to fracture bone, because with the dome of the skull, you're adding a little bit of strength. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to find someone that had taken human skulls and put them in vices <laughs> to oh, see. <laughs> And so I'm like, all right, let's see if I can find it. And I did. And there's a group that did this. And they took cadaver skulls, filled it with, like, um, kind of um, simulation brain matter, and stuck them in vices to see how much force. And this sounds this sounds repulsive, right? Like, everybody's <laughs> like, ah, this is so uncomfortable. Um, and, and you're thinking, why would anyone do this? Like, what weirdo is like, that sounds like a good weekend. It turns out that um, it was done by a bike helmet company. Oh, okay. And, yep. And they wanted to know how strong they needed to make their bike helmets. Mm -hmm. So they're doing this really gory thing for a very compassionate reason. Mm -hmm. Like they're trying to help the world, but to do that, they have to do something that seems very distasteful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that to me was just an interesting twist. Um, I wanted to figure out how many or how long you might be conscious if you were beheaded. Because that's like, you know, that's a question that people since the French Revolution have wanted to answer, right? I'm like, wonder if someone did. So I found a group that um, stuck electrodes in rats' brains mm -hmm. and then cut off their heads and saw how long they, like, were conscious. And, um, and I'm like, why would anyone do that? Like, what makes this sound like a great idea to do on the weekends? Well, it turns out that, um, it was a psych, it was a group of psychologists, I believe, that were studying, um, um, brainwaves and, or studying rat brains. Um, and they wanted to make sure that they, that they were euthanizing rats. Oh, I see. Because, 
you can't inject them with, you know, normal euthanasia drugs because then it, that affects the brain. Mm-hmm. And so then they can't study the brain that they needed to study. And so they had been like kind of snipping the spinal cord thinking that this was, you know, humane. And they were like, we never, we never really tested this. And so all of this seemingly very gory research was for very, very compassionate reasons. And so that to me was kind of a fascinating interplay of like, yeah, this is absolutely horrible, but I'm doing it to try and do something better. So that was, that was interesting. Yeah. It sounds like the book doesn't just focus on the big questions. It's, it sounds like you went into like details about even the small little interesting things. <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm so fascinated by all of it. Like I, I learned way, I learned more than I ever thought I could just by peer review and talking to scientists and getting out there and asking questions that, you know, I found interesting. Yeah. It's one of those, those tasks that seems like when you're doing it, people would be like, why are you doing that? And then all you say is, oh, I'm writing a book. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> I have learned one of the yeah, I tend to be someone that talks a lot about whatever I'm thinking about. And so if I'm really engrossed in learning about, you know, um, navigation by sextant, I'm going to tell you all about it over dinner. And um, <laughs> I, I tend to be that kind of person. And it was fascinating to me how what I had kind of compartmentalized is totally normal. I have just delved into the, you know, this incredibly weird thing. Um, and then we'll talk about it. What I found interesting was what made people uncomfortable and what didn't make people uncomfortable. Hmm. <laughs> like if I talk, what made people go, ah, da, da. and what was like, Oh, cool. Tell me more. And yeah. it was, it was always just really interesting. And the one thing that I, that, universally even when i give talks i only i only gave a talk about this once but incest makes everybody uncomfortable universally hmm. and i gave a talk and i gave a talk about this book in a bar and um added in the section or added in talking about incest and i'm i'm talking about it and i'm like and this is why you might be attra- you're attracted to people that look like you and i look out everybody in the bar is on a date and they're all looking at each other like do we look like each other <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. And I, I'm, I'm halfway through like this entire thing that I had prepared. And finally I look and I'm like, we're all really uncomfortable right now, aren't we? And they're like, yes, we really are. I'm like, great, let's move on. <laughs> so, Next topic. That, that to me, that was like the weird kind of social place that I didn't expect to be a problem. <laughs> but you planted a seed and people might have done their own research and learned more than they expected. I, um, I, I will never go to any long lost family reunions because that's just, <laughs> it's just uncomfortable. Oh, boy. So how many pages is the book? Uh, oh, geez. See, yeah. I'd have to open it. It's like a little, sh- a little shy of 300. So it is pretty, <laughs> yeah. it's filled I mean, it's, with a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. It's 13 chapters. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah. But a, a little shy of 300. Are there any um, scientific issues that uh, we haven't mentioned yet that you might want to mention? Well, I think one of, to me one of the most fascinating um, things I got to learn about um, that I think was is underrated in a lot of sci-fi is the science behind weaponry mm-hmm. and the science behind swords um, and really also how. Um, during the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, how science affected, um, like the, like cultural development, how science really affected, um, trade, how science affected, um, how cultures developed, and then how the breakdown of trade, the breakdown of communication, really led towards the develop, towards scientific developments. And so things like the, the Bronze Age, came about because it's really, really easy to melt copper. And so to make bronze, it's you can get fires hot enough to do that really easily. So everyone's like, cool, bronze is great. We can do this. But the two components of bronze, you had to have – they weren't – the the bronze and, and tin are not found – in or copper and tin are not found in the same area of the world. So you had to – so trade routes were established – to keep the Bronze Age going, mm-hmm. because everyone wanted good weapons, so you establish trade. 
And then trade broke down, and then people were like, well, crap, what are we going to do? We need to hit each other with metal. <laughs> we don't know how to hit each other with metal because we don't have good metal. And so then they got very good at making very hot fires to be able to turn iron into weapons. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that, that that history of how that happened was fascinating. Um, and then the development of making um, iron into weapons and how, how that happens and how um, different types of steel lead to different types of weapons and um and it was that to me was fascinating and then also specifically valerian steel was based on a um type of steel uh in the third century called damascus steel Mm -hmm. and they're said to have very similar properties like keep an edge only a few people know how to make it you know you can't recreate it Mm -hmm. um and it turns out that damascus steel when you image it in modern um electron microscopes what they could see is that in the third century, they were accidentally making carbon nanotubes, huh. which and they just the process, the very exact process that they went through accidentally made a type of seal that had carbon nanotubes surrounding normal steel. It was it, it was amazing. <laughs> and um, the fact that it's now that was in the third century and we were killing each other with carbon nanotubes extremely effectively. <laughs> And now we're making them in high tech labs. And like it just that that interplay to me was fascinating. And I learned inadvertently so much sociology and history while learning about steel. So that that was an unexpected joy. So it sounds like you the sociology and history finds its way into the book as well. A little bit. I mean, as much. The thing is, I'm not. I, what I certainly didn't want to do is oversell my expertise. Mm. <laughs> um, and um, there's only so good I am. Uh, and I was not a history major. And so I try very hard not to oversell it. But, um, it, it, you know, in the places where it obviously fits, I, I, I discuss it. Um, and a lot about the story of science, too, and uh, okay. different groups looking at the same thing and how they interact with each other. I talk about that. But, yeah, medieval his- history is I, – I, I talk about what I can with as much confidence as I can muster, but that's not my <laughs> my wheelhouse. <laughs> Let me ask you one thing that popped in my – do you have any discussions about – I forget the name of the, the city sort of in the clouds with the big, you know, floor with the opening, you know. Oh, high- oh the Erie. Yeah. Do, do you touch on what it would take to build and have sort of a thing like that, you know, like the winds or, you know? <gasps> I do not. And now I wish I did. That's not a question anyone has asked me. Just something. Oh, wow. oh, my gosh. I, like, I didn't even think of that because I saw that and I was like, yep, someone falls out. That's going to suck. Like, mm. and then, I mean, but it wasn't to me dying by falling through a hole or like the sky cells that are tilted a little like all of that is uncomfortable but not an interesting question um, but i didn't even think about the architecture yeah wow i really missed an opportunity in that one (laughs) that's the sequel i guess oh that's fascinating and actually i was going to ask about the why am i totally blanking the the main city um uh king's landing yeah king's king's landing you know that's a pretty extensive city i guess um you could build something that big, but I, uh, what I wonder about is, you know, construct, construction techniques to build such great, you know, large well, buildings. And- we clearly had those. Like, so, uh, I mean, George R. R. Martin had said, basically, this is, you know, we're at medieval technology, right? Pre-gunpowder. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all pre-gunpowder. But, um, I mean, we built Notre Dame. I mean, like, people did fine. Like, big, big walls, big buildings, cathedrals, they had that down. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's, that's well within what we were, what humans were capable of doing back then. Um, but it is, it is, the architecture is an interesting question. I just, I did not explore it because, um, it was, it just, it wasn't something I thought about because that, that's a thing that we did back then. So I was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is fascinating, but he has, you know, he has said that, um, it was, the technology was of that age. Mm-hmm. So we certainly have buildings to show that we knew what we were doing back then. Mm-hmm. But when King's Landing went down, it seemed a lot, there was a lot more to it than I expected. That thing was big. Yeah, uh, that was that was interesting because I, well, I mean, we could go into a long debate about the final season. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, 
and suddenly, like, uh, it was basically Drogon Ex Machina by the last, you know, thing. Like, he, that firepower is not a thing that could happen. And, you know, the way everything was basically just being torched and crumbled and King's Landing kept going and going and going. And, you know, I mean, the, the city seemed to grow as it burned. And yes, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of that, but, uh, it, yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of discontinuity in that. So, all right, um, yeah. yeah, I won't dwell too much on that. We'll just enjoy the parts that are, and we'll just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. So, was there? So, doing your research, you mentioned you reached out to scientists and others for for a lot of the the topics. Was there anything, any particular, uh, any interesting stories with the research? Um, I know you mentioned talking to the endurance runner and that was fascinating. One of the, I think one of the most interesting stories I kind of uncovered and I wasn't able to talk to any of the researchers involved. Um, but I was trying to figure out how one makes Damascus steel. Like this is something that was lost. How does, how does one make it? And so I found, um, papers published by two different groups, both of whom said they'd figured out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Okay, completely different methods. <laughs> hmm. And both said it was the method to make Damascus steel. Hmm. Okay, and it tends to be when you're doing research, it's like you find one paper and then you kind of go down the rabbit hole. Like once you figure out the line of papers you're going down, hmm. you figure out what research you need to pull. And so I ended up just pulling all of the work by these two groups hmm. and kind of putting it in chronological order. So it wasn't easy to find an answer because it was really enmeshed with each other. And what I found was one group said they could do it. And then the other group said, no, this group is wrong. And for a number of years, it was just publishing papers back and forth <laughs> and snarking, snarking at each other in the papers. So it was like, this group has said to have done it, but they are completely wrong. And so it was just this like clearly antagonistic relationship between these two groups. And it was year after year after year. And then all of a sudden it stops and I was like, well, what happened? So I'm thinking I'd love to talk to these guys, right? Like, I, it, this is great. Well, one of the groups died. <laughs> so oh. it really was the hill they were willing to die on. Like, yeah. they're they're fighting this out through the rest of their lives. <laughs> and then it's like, okay. But it's fascinating. Like, the science of it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, this other group was like, Y'all seriously hold my beer. And they went and got an archaeologist to let them take a tiny piece of a Damascus steel blade, which is, you know, I mean, these are national treasures. And they cut out a little piece and put it in a scanning tunnel electron microscope, which is when they found the carbon nanotubes. And so it was like these two groups spend their life yelling at each other. And another guy's like, dude, you're both wrong, but cool, thanks. I'll reference all your papers. Actually, you're wrong. Huh. <laughs> and that to me was just a really interesting story of like this build up and then like one guy swoops in with a two page paper like whoops so um huh. and i didn't meet any of them but the the story of it was fascinating um i also there's a group there were, it was a group of grad students that only one of them would let me use his name and uh they wanted to know about wonky season about the wonky seasons so they did a computer simulation and said, well, what if we have two suns? And okay, so first off, we'd noticed two suns. Like, yeah, clearly I, I dismissed the idea that we could have that two suns would be a reasonable solution because you'd notice two suns in the skies. It's not Tatooine, it's Westeros, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, but this group did a paper and did a great job and did all these simulations. And I was like, well, I have to talk about this. And they did this paper and then they put it on the archive, which is like, you know, kind of the preprint. Um, it's a website where you can put up research right before, like after it's been kind of submitted to publication or, you know, it's, hmm. it's a real academic website, but it's not peer reviewed. Okay. So you can't ever cite anything on archive, but it means you kind of claim it. Like my results are coming out. I did this work. Hmm. So they put it on archive. And I talked to them. Uh, I got one of them. Let me talk to him. And uh, he didn't. He was really uncomfortable about it. Apparently, they put it up and they got in loads of trouble from their advisor, who was like, if you're doing this, why are you wasting? You know, why are you spending your time on this? You could be doing more research. And like their advisor was so unhappy that they'd spent scientific time 
on doing this. And I'm like, but that's what we do on the weekends. Like, I make like, this is this is the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of trouble for it. And um, the the I, the one person that will let me use his name, he ended up. Um, you know, he's, I think he's either postdoc or professor level now. So he, he had a fine career. Um, but he's like, it's a really sensitive issue among us. So if the other two don't email you back, it's because we got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so oh, that, that to me was fascinating. Um, just like how it was like, we had a lot of fun and we can't tell anybody about it. <laughs> oh, so that, that advisor sounds like something of a totalitarian. Well, you know, everybody, you know, it, it, <laughs> I won't, I won't say anymore. That just sounds pretty intense. And I mean, my general philosophy is if you don't give people to be space to be curious and have fun, they're not going to do a good job anyway. So exactly. You need a release. Exactly. And you need to be curious in your own way and it leads to amazing stuff. So that was, uh, yeah, that was an interesting story. I feel really bad that I like dredged up some old memory. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of the things that you did that you enjoyed. Is there anything else that was any of it that was the most enjoyable part that you maybe haven't mentioned or maybe another thing angle you'd like to talk about? Oh, see, I'm trying to think. I I had so much fun learning, just learning things. Um, It was really interesting kind of um, see. I I don't know. To me, what I found fascinating is what. I was is was more like this very meta like what I found interesting and what I wanted nothing to do with yeah. and like what I found boring like I really I I you know had agreed to write a chapter on navigation at sea and I was kind of like you know the most interesting thing that I've like you know it was great here's how you sail here's how a boat works you know here's how you navigate by stars but it wasn't anything kind of new and exciting mm-hmm. except learning about scurvy mm-hmm. and um, the fact that the fact that humans can get scurvy because of a gene mutation that means we can't produce our own vitamin C. Hmm. And um, primates can get scurvy because they can't produce vitamin C. And the only other animal that can get scurvy that has that genetic mutation is the guinea pig. It's like, okay. So that to me was fascinating. Um, I didn't think, uh, you know, I didn't think that there were things I could be grossed out about by the time I got to it, but writing the chapter on zombies, I saw things that nature does that is just not okay. (laughs) Nature does some weird stuff. And there are things that happen in nature that I saw videos and just screamed. And, like, it was bad. And um, rabies is terrifying. And research was researching, like, really the neurology of rabies and how why you can get infected and not know about it and why it takes so long and why it's you know such a terrible disease um and realized that like my totally indoor cats were like two weeks late on their rabies shots and i'm like i'm at <laughs> appointment tomorrow i called like i was like we're going in today <laughs> so um it was fascinating to me like what kind of i was just like i can't deal with this and what was very much like sure um and so that was interesting um but i think learning about you know it was interesting learning about all of this stuff and getting to write about all of this stuff and take all these interesting facts and frame them kind of in a story frame them in a coherent way Mm -hmm. um yeah it really was like learning stuff about humanity and science i never thought that i would learn um and like just the weird facts that i can come up with now are really quite twisted um <laughs> i i it things like uh the uh guillotine was last used in france after the first star wars movie came out yeah. <laughs> like so stuff, you know, Darth Vader was choking people. France was still beheading people. Like that's weird. Yeah, that <laughs> is. I didn't expect that. I wouldn't have thought right. that. Yeah. So things like that. Um, I uh, I learned a lot about dinosaurs for talking about dragonflight. And hmm. the interesting thing to me is what I thought would be the problem rarely was. So I thought that dragons couldn't, might not be able to fly because you know, big wings or things like that. And, you know, that heavy body, big wings. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, well, 747s seem to do just fine. Like mm-hmm. we can get something that big off the ground. Where's, where's the problem? Mm-hmm. And so in doing the math, it turns out that it's 
the biggest issue is that bones might not be strong enough. So the the upper limit when they when paleontologists are looking at what dinosaurs were flighted and what weren't like what was the biggest pterosaur to be flighted there's one where there's some argument um because uh people thought that bones wouldn't that that dinosaur bones wouldn't be strong enough to lift something that big off the ground and that was the like it was the bone strength that became the determining factor and I wouldn't have ever expected that like that didn't seem to be the limiting factor, but it it really is the bone strength. Hmm. Um, things like uh, stuff that I always thought made total sense, like intuitively, I'm like that should happen, couldn't happen at all. And stuff that seemed very uncomfortable, it's like oh yeah, sure, nature t- nature's cool with that, hmm. move along. And that that was interesting. Um, the the things that people know, um, I I I was looking for, I was trying to figure out how to determine how long it would take for a lake in a certain temperature to freeze solid. Mm-hmm. So um, there's that scene where Jon Snow and all those idiots go, I hate Jon Snow, go north of the wall. <laughs> I hate him. He's dumb and he should have died seasons ago. And so they all go north of the wall in the dumbest plot line ever known to sci-fi history. And um, they end up like stuck on that island waiting for the lake to refreeze. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, what's the time scale on that? Because if it's too long, are they going to starve to death? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Are they even going to be able to battle? Like, what's the time scale? And um, so I was like, I cannot, is that a math problem I can do? Like, looking at how long it would take a lake to freeze. Turns out ice fishers do it all the time, ice fishermen. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, a standard formula because they need to know if they can drive their F-150 onto the lake. Yeah, yeah. Like, the things people know, but unless you're that specific group, you, you never would ask the question or look at it. And yeah. that... The fact that I'm pulling from everything from, like, you know, the journal Nature and, like, Ice Fishing Monthly was just (laughs) in in the same, like, chapter to me was just amazing. So I loved getting to just go all over. Oh, yeah, that is. That is pretty nice. Yeah. Um, What you did, and you've mentioned stuff that surprised you, but is there anything that maybe you haven't mentioned that was the most surprising thing you came across? Oh. I know there's a lot we've talked about. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Um, I th- so one of, the, one of the things that was interesting, um, I did an entire chapter on wildfire and whether or not wildfire could really happen mm-hmm. and whether or not there is anything that could burn green, float on water, stick to you, know, stick to you all the things that wildfire is supposed to do. Talked a lot about the history of Greek fire um, and what that meant. Um, and one of the things that I taught that I wanted to talk about was napalm mm-hmm. because that is a, a that's really close to wildfires, just not green. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's such a sensitivity and nobody wants to talk about it. You know, it was such a terrible like Vietnam era, terrible, terrible weapon. Mm-hmm. And um, what that meant is because nobody Nobody wanted to admit that this is a thing the U.S. did. Like, nobody wanted to admit that we did this. I couldn't find anything about the chemistry of it. Wow. I couldn't find anything about the science of it. So I hunted and hunted, and I am on I, – I've, I, I have TSA pre-check. I usually fly through security, except when I was writing the wildfire chapter. It's the only time I've been stopped in whole <laughs> And I'm like, yep. You, I deserve this. Thank you. I've been on the Antarctic cookbook. I deserve this. So I get pulled aside. Um, it, sure. Um, but it, to me, uh, it was, it was interesting that like, we just wanted to cover up the fact that we ever did this. Hmm. And I couldn't, I, I had to dig in some really interesting places and, um, learn that it was called, uh, if you wanted to find the actual, more about the chemistry and its development, you had to call it incendigel because napalm is such a like loaded term. And so figuring out even how to look at the history of it was so hard and just kind of the ability for people to just not admit that they did a thing and and just get, get rid of all of it. And so that, that was just, it was uncomfortable because it was like, everybody talks about this. This is a thing. We know this is a thing. We did this. There's pictures and then we just can't talk about it. And, hmm. and that was interesting. Um, the number of kind of 
advances made in wartime was also like scientific advances made me kind of fairly uncomfortable, but um, just how much war can really advance science made me extremely uncomfortable. But um, the ingenuity of World War Two, I found fascinating um, because during World War Two, it's kind of like we don't have much of anything. Let's make stuff out of it. Right. Like. We, we, we're out of stuff. What can we do? And um, so they actually started trying to develop um, a, an aircraft carrier made out of an iceberg at one point. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they figured out, this one guy figured out um, that if you mix sawdust with ice, it makes it stronger, but it also means that um, it fractures, it breaks um, more repeatably. Hmm. So you always kind of know where that fracture point is. Um, hmm. and so the, the resulting mixture of like sawdust and ice was called piecrete. And they actually tried to make a, um, airship, air, aircraft carrier out of piecrete and figure out how to have a frozen assembly plant where they mix <laughs> sawdust and like ice and, and, and there's plans for this. They called it the Berg ship. There's plans for the Berg ship. Hmm. And, um, how feasible it is. I mean, they got really far down the road of how feasible is it to do this? Cause we need it. Mm-hmm. And, um, it ended up that the, like it was either the war was won or like there was some other like change where they were like, okay, we don't need to do this anymore. But they were like set to go to make an aircraft carrier out of an iceberg. And that to me, I mean, that's ingenuity. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I guess they didn't. I mean, a nuclear bomb must have seemed like so far fetched at the beginning, and then they're like, "Oh, this works." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, I do not get into nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see that in Game of Thrones. Really, just the icebergs and the storms. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. So, was there a question you came across that you just could not? get an answer to or or maybe one one question that was just the most difficult to finally figure out so the death chapter the the chapter 13 is called the king's justice and it's all about the science of the ways to die and some of them i found fascinating which was also a little twisted but like you know just but i the one death i think that gutted me in the series more than any other i mean so yeah I, i cried when viserion died but um the one that just was so absolutely gutting that I could, I could only watch it once and I'd, you know, rewatch it a number of times. I could only do it once was Shireen's death mm. when her dad burns her at the stake. And I, I could only do it once. And the very last section that I wrote in the entire book, and I almost didn't write it was the science of, um, being burned at the stake because mm. it's just so, awful and it's the only one where like most of them you can kind of I, I was able to detach like the chances of me getting my skull crushed are so small like I just you know you can kind of detach and it was something about that like I just I, I viscerally felt it so much it was so hard to write and um and I, I almost didn't and then I was like but the, the science of it is really interesting um because of the way they would burn people at the stake changed based on kind of people's feelings of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know how you could humanely burn someone versus not, it was just, it, to mm-hmm. me, that was interesting. Yeah. And, um, so it was an interesting question. It was something that a lot of people were gutted about. I really did want to write it. Um, but it was really, really hard. Um, the one place I did in terms of dying that I did draw the line on was crucifixion because, you know, Daenerys kills a bunch of people with crucifixion. And it was like that was kind of fair game. I was like, nope, draw the line done. I can't I, I cannot deal with how it's it's so brutal and I can't. I can't write it and effectively deal with the religious overtones of it mm. in a way that anyone would leave that section happy. And so I just, I was just like that, that is my bridge too far. I cannot do that. And like left and, and just did not write that section. Yeah. Um, so that was, that, that was really my, it was too, too terrible to read about for me to be able to write about it in a like sensitive way. And that was just, that was what I couldn't do. (laughs) Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. The the psychology of, of science and how much you're willing to, how much people might be willing to go 
yeah. to learn. And, and <laughs> that was my limit. Yeah. Apparently. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what do you hope the book will do? Like, do you, do you hope it'll get more people interested in science or just like fill fan needs and, and questions or what do you expect? Yes to all of that. Um, but like, I don't know. I, I've been thinking that it, it, this is an interesting question because I've been thinking about it and it's, I want people to be okay with being fascinated by these weird questions. Mm. You know, these, are, this is a lot of this is like, what used to be bar bets before the iPhone, right? <laughs> like, is, yeah, I bet a dragon couldn't fly. Like, this, this is what we used to talk about over beers. Mm. And, and I feel like when we can answer all of those questions in our pocket, like, it, that kind of discussion went away. And I'm hoping to bring that back in some way. Like, I hope people read this and argue with me on the, like, on Twitter about it. And, you know, I hope people are like, well, I don't agree with point two. And do you realize that if you did it like this, it would like, I hope people engage and I hope it makes people um, more fascinated by the show. And I hope it makes them understand just how much goes into making a good story and that a lot of it is good science. And I really hope that that people walk away with a richer understanding of the show. Um, and also, like, I hope. Um, that there is someone else out there that's in like high school or college that doesn't know if they want to be a physics major or <laughs> is someone that um, maybe didn't see themselves becoming a physics major, but they did always kind of ask these questions or it doesn't seem like a career that they should be in and looks at me who's on the internet talking about this insane stuff yeah. <laughs> and like really excited about it. And it's just like, yes, it turns out I, it is okay to be this excited about this type of thing. Yeah. And like, it's, a, it's okay to be excited and engaged and arguing about science topics. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people feel that way. Yeah. So I just, I want everyone to have a good time reading it, listening, uh, you know, to it, learning more physics. I hope everyone comes away with like six fun bar facts they can share at, <laughs> you know, Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. Um, just to get people talking about science because it's a part of everything. It's, it's, you know, it's a part of all we do. Um, but it's also a part of our sci-fi shows, you know, or our fantasy shows. It's a part of everything. And, Good science can lead to a good story. And one of, I think Game of Thrones did a, an interesting thing with that, with the, you know, with the whole plot of Jon Snow and company going north and everybody, you know, it's this amazing scene there, you know, it's a huge plot point. They're going north to get a white, to bring it back to Cersei. They're, everyone thinks they're dumb, but whatever. Cersei's not as sure. They go up and giant battle scene. Danny flies in. Um, and Viserion dies, right? Like this is, this is just the whole thing. That Monday, all anyone was talking about is the fact that Gendry said, Gendry set a land speed record going back to the wall. <laughs> all of a sudden, like ravens can fly twice as fast as they could in season two and a dragon goes back. Like this is the, the timeline was all off. <laughs> and you have this amazing story and everyone's like, and I can't get into that story because your science is wrong. Yeah. And, and the fact that science that made people feel uncomfortable stopped the story from being enjoyable. And I think that that, the, the fact that the science is so good for so long. Yeah. And even though if you do all the math and all the airspeed velocity of Ravens and all that, it's, the timeline isn't too bad. Yeah. Um, it's not as bad as everyone thought, but that, that even cause we felt uncomfortable about it, it ruined that part of the story. And to me, that's just a huge kind of warning sign of you have to do good. You have to have good science or you're not going to have a good story because all anybody's going to be talking about is your bad science. Yeah. And I think that Game of Thrones both illustrates how um, amazing science can lead to a great story, but also how bad science can pull you out of it. So I think that that's a good kind of example as you know, for other storytellers that it is important to think about these things. It's not kind of an afterthought. You really do need to craft it into everything you do or people are going to feel really uncomfortable about it. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, they, people often say that a, a story can fail if it doesn't follow its own, the, the logical rules that's set up for its own world. And if you use real science in yep. your fantasy world, you know, yeah, keep it going. And that 
Exactly. And as long as you obey your own rules, like as long as you establish your rules and obey your rules, it doesn't matter what your rules are. Yeah. And that's interesting. And that was that I always think about that. Um, I'm a Doctor Who fan and I never liked Matt Smith's Doctor Who because he broke his own rules too much. Uh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're quirky and you have a bow tie, but you're breaking your rules and I don't like it. And, and, and it makes me uncomfortable. And so like, you know, Christopher Eccleston, he, he had rigid rules, but he was always in them versus Matt Smith that's all over. And, and it to me was amazing how I perceived them so differently because one obeyed rules and one didn't. But that obeying your own rules, it doesn't matter if the rules apply to the real world, but you have to stay within the rules you set. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah, you do have good uh, credentials. Your sci-fi fantasy <laughs> credentials are pretty, pretty strong. Yeah. I've never watched Star Trek. That's my one like. Oh. Geek. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm shocked to hear that actually, but uh, I know okay. too, right? <laughs> we all have a weakness. No, <laughs> Just, with, so none of the series at all. No, what? never got into it. Wow. Wow. I know. I should, <laughs> but you know, I just I've had other stuff to watch, so <laughs> Yeah. So, it's a so, it's a giant gaping hole in my nerd credentials. Wow. Um so did you have any you said MIT Press approached you. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published or well, I'm getting it finished. It's a, it's a lot of work. My dad passed away while I was in the middle of writing it. And so it set things back. And so, um, getting it, you know, it's a significant investment. Um, but, uh, you know, I talked with them and then put the proposal together and then they were excited about it. So, um, you know, I, I really enjoy communicating science. That's, that's what I do career wise is help people communicate science. And so I loved that I had this opportunity. Um, I'd always kind of, wanted to be able to do something like this. And so when I saw it, I jumped on it. Um, but yeah, it was just, it's it situation where lucky coincidence that I was able to take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Did the readers so, have many comments? Um, one of, uh, yes, but one of my favorites, uh, a lot of them, ha you know, figured out some math holes that I'd done wrong or conversions. And, um, one of my favorite for the reviewers, so I do the proposal and they send it out to reviewers and the reviewers are like, yes, let's publish. Um, but one of the reviewers was like, we are very unhappy about the idea of chapter 13 talking all about death. I mean, this is just not appropriate for children. <laughs> like, oh my God, no, it's not. It absolutely is not appropriate for children. Like, no, I am questioning your parenting skills. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think yeah. Game of Thrones is really for kids either. No, well, that's exactly it. Like, it clearly, and I think that the reviewer hadn't really seen the show. They just knew it was this cultural phenomenon. And um, I still don't know who they are. But um, So I'm sorry if you're watching and I just totally insulted you, but that really made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't name names, so it's fine. Right. I'm just like, no, it's not appropriate for children. Okay, moving on. And I had to kind of respond to the comments and my response, you know, and then send that back to the editors. And my response to that one comment was, yes, they're exactly correct. We will not be marketing this to children and I'm questioning their parenting techniques. <laughs> and that was just it. Done. <laughs> so. Uh, well, so what's your yeah. next writing project? Whew, I'm not really sure. I actually just changed jobs. So right now I'm going kind of, you know, all out on promoting this and changing jobs. Um, but one of the things that I did uh, kind of in conjunction with doing this book, um, when I worked for the American Physical Society, I wrote a series of um, comics for middle-level readers um, about a laser superhero and her battles with villains such as misalignment and general relativity. Oh and it's all full of, like, <laughs> middle school humor and puns. And um, that was a lot of fun. And it would be neat to do something like that again. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, but that something completely different. Um, I also have a great talk on the science of uh, the movie Frozen, and that's going to get, you know, I'm going to, that's going to get a new reboot on this weekend when Frozen 2 comes out. Yeah. Okay. So, right. Yeah. I, I kind of love kids' movies. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so where can people find you on the, uh, on the web? Um, easiest place is, uh, both is on, um, Instagram and Twitter. I'm mathlete 79. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's the easiest place. Um, and then right now, uh, since I'm not doing Spectra, since I left, uh, APS, um, most of what I do is, is 
put out through there. Okay, so Matt, so can you spell mathlete quickly for the M A T H L E T E seventy nine. Okay, all right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, just thank you so much, and you know. I, I hope people really enjoy reading it. I hope people appreciate the humor and laugh and have fun and get excited about science. Yeah, just hearing what you said, I'm excited to get get to this book because you mentioned so many things that I'm just like, what, what? And I just want to know more. So you will be a wealth of useless trivia knowledge, but you will always win bar trivia. So. <laughs> I I feel like it might have some real world application somewhere in there, but maybe. <laughs> awesome so all right well thank you thank you so much it was great talking to you thank you for listening you can find more interesting information like this on chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com you can also find the podcast on your favorite podcast feed under the title full contact nerd that includes apple podcasts stitcher and spotify please remember to rate this podcast it really helps we're on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, and on Twitter at Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.